Well, good morning, everybody. Great to be with everyone online and everyone here in Nashua. And one of my favorite questions to get to know people is this. Who are your Mount Rushmore of influences? The four or so women, men, maybe you knew them, maybe you related to them, maybe they've written things that you've appreciated that have really shaped who you are, how you live, and the kind of trajectory of your life. I think we all have one or two, maybe four or so people that have influenced us in this way. And it helps me really get to know people by having that conversation. If you've ever interview for a a role here at Crossway, chances are I'm going to ask you that question. Now, if you don't explicitly say that one of the people on your Mount Rushmore list of influencers is Dallas Willard, you can still get hired here, but it surely doesn't hurt uh, to mention that name. Now, when I was uh, serving in my old church, I got to go out for a business, uh, kind of with a business leader, going down to a game at the Red Sox uh, down at Fenway, and I was asking him that very question, who are your kind of Mount Rushmore of influences? And he answered in a very surprising way. He said, my Mount Rushmore is not the people who have maybe done it so well. My Mount Rushmore of influences are actually the people that have done it so poorly that I never want to repeat their mistakes in my life. And what I do positively is a result of watching it done so poorly in the past. And I thought that was fascinating. Probably a lot of us have seen people work in ways we would never want to work or lead or manage or or maybe live and have some habits that we don't want to repeat in our own lives. I share this because as we've been going through this journey through the Bible, the with God journey through the Bible, through the year, through us, and we've been going through Genesis, by and large, we have seen examples of people who are not necessarily shining examples, but cautionary tales of ways that maybe we shouldn't live the with God life, like Lot or Cain. We've seen a couple good examples along the way, Noah and Abraham, but even they commit some pretty big blunders on their own. But today, as we finish Genesis and then make our way next week into Exodus, Genesis finishes chapters 37 to 50 with someone who I think is a shining example of what a with God life should be all about. And that's Jacob's 11th son, Joseph. Maybe know him as the guy with that Technicolor dream swag kind of going on and uh, dream coat. And all the Gen Zers out there are like, he is so not cool trying to say that. I can be okay with that. But Joseph's life, we meet him when he's 17 years old. And Joseph gets this dream about how his brothers and others are going to be bowing down before him. And probably unwisely, he decides to disclose that dream to others. And while that was foolish, what he does after he is wronged and betrayed by his brothers, sold into slavery, makes his way to Egypt, what he does in response to something that was done so inhumanely to him shows what a with God life can be like for each and every single one of us. He stands out as an example of how you can live life with God, have a God's eye view of life, even in the most unfavorable circumstances we can almost imagine. And so today, as we get to look at a positive example, someone in the Bible who I would say is on my Mount Rushmore list of biblical characters I really appreciate and admire the most, as we look at his great example, I hope that you will listen and pay attention to your own heart. I believe dormant within each and every one of us is a desire that is God-birthed to want to live a life with him, 
an extraordinary life, a life of character, a life of beauty, a life of purpose, a life of meaning. Some of the ancients would call this to be a saint, that there is a desire lying dormant within us that we want to live an extraordinary life. Now, one of the ways to understand this idea is that a saint isn't just someone who does all these great things, but they are people who are so loved with God and they live in such communion with him that they live a great life because of what God does, not so much because of how great they are. There's a French writer named Leon Bloy, a Catholic novelist who says this. It's a fascinating statement. The only real sadness, the only real failure, the only great tragedy in life is to not become a saint. It's not to be stuck here while all your friends are in Disneyland and Disney World here during school break. That's not the only failure or sadness in life. The only real sadness is not to become the person that God created you to be. And the good news is because of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, when we put our faith and trust in him, all of us are seen through the lens of Jesus. That God doesn't view us by our failures, our past, our sin. God sees us through the lens of the perfect life of Jesus, who is our representative. And so God in the New Testament describes believers as the saints. God only declares you a saint if you put your faith and trust in Jesus. But now, Joseph's life, I believe, is as an example, a call for us to become the way that God already views us, to become who we are already declared to be, to be a saint. And so I want you to think as we hear his life story today about what your ultimate goals are in life. Where do you really want to go? Who do you really want to become? Is your mission, is your purpose, is the path that you're walking really going in the right direction? And I hope and pray that today something would awaken in you that you want to live the greatest, most influential, the most powerful, beautiful, with God life that you can possibly live. I get up here and preach every week because I want to invite you toward that. That's the kind of life I'm trying to live. And I typically preach from my failures, not my successes. But today, as we look at Joseph's life, may God birth and awaken something in us, a deeper desire to live the lives he has made us. God has made us, called us to live, to be people who are like saints in him. So Joseph's story goes from Genesis 37 to Genesis 50. We'll try and tell it. I'm not going to read all of it. But I do, if you brought a Bible, want you to turn to Genesis 39. Or you can follow along on the screen. And throughout the series, we're trying to say, what's this whole big book, these 66 books of the Bible all about? We believe the theme woven throughout all of the Old and New Testament is the idea of the with God life. I'd like for us to listen and to hear some of the ways that Joseph was involved in this interactive, intimate, with God life. So if you would, and if you're able, please stand with me as we hear God's word from Genesis 39. We'll look at verses 1 through 6, and then verses 20 to 23. And pay particular attention to where you hear the phrase, with God. Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. This is after being sold into slavery by his brothers. Potiphar, an Egyptian who was one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there. The Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered, and he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. When his master saw that the Lord was with him and that 
the Lord gave him success in everything he did. Joseph found favor in his eyes and became Potiphar's attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household, and he entrusted to his care everything he owned. From the time he put him in charge of the of the household and all that he had owned, uh, sorry, all that he owned, uh, because of Joseph, it flourished, it prospered. The blessing of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had, both in the house and in the field. Verse six. So Potiphar left everything he had in Joseph's care, with Joseph in charge. He did not concern himself with anything except the food he ate. I will find out that Joseph gets arrested and is imprisoned for false things said about him. Now he's in prison. Verse 20. But while Joseph was there in prison, the Lord was with him. He showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. So the warden put Joseph in charge of all those held in the prison. And he was made responsible for all that was done there. The warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. These are God's words from the book of Genesis. Thanks be to the Lord. You may be seated. So in a very short 10 or so verses, four times we discover that phrase, God was with Joseph being used. Repetition in the Old Testament and in the Scriptures is a way of indicating and denoting emphasis that God was with Joseph. And everything in the text throughout this story seems to indicate that Joseph was acutely aware of this. He didn't try and live life on his own. He wanted to live life with God. And because he was living life with God in this interactive relationship moment by moment, Joseph was able to transcend having a merely human perspective on the injustices he experienced in his life from the wrongs that have set his life path in the wrong direction. He was able to zoom out and almost get a God's eye view of his unwanted reality, being enslaved, betrayed, disowned by his brothers, and then even being a prisoner, being unjustly incarcerated. He was able to have a God's eye view of his life. Now think about your life and how you think about your life for a moment. Maybe you like it. Maybe you're dissatisfied by it. Maybe you feel good about yourself. Maybe you don't. That's your human perspective on your life. I'd love for you just to think for a moment, zooming out and imagine, what would a God's eye perspective on your life be like? How does God see you? Think about how you see yourself and how God sees you. How are those things potentially different? But I believe Joseph shows us that to live a with God life, it's about seeing ourselves through the lens of God's love And not just from a human standpoint. And I believe this has a lot of really practical applications to how we live our everyday lives. Today, I would like for us to just look at a few snapshots of Joseph's life to see how we can get a God's eye view on our work, a God's eye view on the temptations that we all face, and a God's eye view on life's unwanted circumstances that all of us have. How can we see things through God's view and not simply from a human, human limited perspective? 
So to begin, let's look at a God's eye view of work. Who's ever had a job that they don't want or maybe a boss that they didn't like or a teacher that they didn't connect with? Lots of us. Now, fortunately, I see our staff. No one's raising their hands here. So all very wise people here in this moment. Work is tough. In Genesis 1 and 2, we saw God made us to work and work was a good thing. But because we sinned and disconnected ourselves from the life-giving resources of God, Work is filled with thorns and thistles and reply all emails and life is now harder to to get through. From a human standpoint, work almost seems like nothing except a necessary evil. But what if we could start to zoom out and get a God's eye view on our daily work? I think Joseph seems to be able to do this. As we read about, he is living as a slave under this person Potiphar. And yet we have every indication that he's doing his work with integrity, that he's doing his work with excellence, because excellence honors God and it inspires people. He's doing his work really, really well, even though it's probably the last job he would ever want in his life to be working for a foreign Egyptian and a slave master. And yet he does it well. And God seems to bless his efforts as he does his work with God. I think in a lot of ways, Joseph embodies this great teaching in the New Testament from Paul's letter to the Colossians, chapter 3, verses 22, or 23 to 24. Paul says this, Whatever you do, not if you like it, but whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Perhaps Joseph sees it's not Potiphar I'm really trying to serve here or work for. It's really God. Now just imagine for a moment, you're probably picturing your boss or your teacher or somebody that you work with. What if you really weren't serving them or that cause or trying to reach that goal, but you're ultimately trying to serve God? How would that reframe how you do what you do? I'll confess that even... About two or three times a year, I just need to get a little work reset. Even as a pastor, it can be a very big temptation for me to think, I'm really trying to serve, to bless and just and please the congregation, or create a great work environment for our staff, or, or to try and please the elders who oversee me and hold me accountable. And if I make the person I'm serving some human being... Well, when I get wounded by ministry or people ghost me or people kind of fade away from the Lord or from the church, man, those losses can be crippling and piercing. But when I remember, I'm not ultimately trying to serve a congregation or even an elder board or a staff. I'm trying to serve the Lord. It helps me be far more resilient. It helps me be more steadfast. It gives me more significance and, and, and meaning to my work day by day. So I'm not serving people, serving God. To quote Dallas Willard, he often would pray that people would know the everlasting significance of their work day by day. And our work has everlasting significance, whether it's as a student or as it's a parent at home or an employee or a retiree, your day by day work has everlasting significance. When you don't do it for yourself, you don't do it for a paycheck, you don't do it to impress others or just climb the ladder, but when you do it for God, you're not just going to work, you're serving the Lord. And I believe Joseph helps us see our daily job, even the daily grind, 
with a God's eye view to it. And that inspires us to do our work so that others would flourish, that we can love others, that we can show Christ to those in our day-to-day lives more and more. How might a God's eye perspective of work change how you do what you do? How can you do it with God, not even just for him? So Joseph gives us a powerful perspective, a God's eye view of what daily work well done can be like. But even when we do our work really well, temptations are still a part of it. And I believe Joseph shows us what a God's eye view on temptation can be like. Now we see that verse 6 here, let's pick it up at verse 39. Let's look at a God's eye view on temptation. It begins this way. Now Joseph was well built and handsome. Let's pause there for a moment. Believe it or not, recent archaeological studies have discovered findings of what they think Joseph looked like. They end up doing some artistic renderings to say, if he lived in 2023, what might he look like? And here's the image they created. (laughs) Just kidding, just kidding here. Just trying to fight off that skinny dad bod kind of syndrome that uh, I'm dealing with here as my metabolism slows. Now, just making sure you're all there with me. Not true, but let's just pick it back up here. Joseph was well-built and handsome. And after a while, his master's wife, Potiphar's wife, took notice of Joseph and said, Come to bed with me. But he refused. With me in charge, he told her, My master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns, he is entrusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you because you are his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? And though she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her or even be with her. Temptations to walk away from God and do things our way or to fulfill the expectations of others are everywhere, not just when it comes to uh, our sexuality, but when it comes to trying to acquire money or, or power or position, whatever that temptation might be. But we live in a world that is saturated with temptations toward lust. And I think it's fascinating how Joseph frames this. He resists Potiphar's wife and says, how could I do such a wicked thing and sin against Potiphar? He says, how can I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? I mean, in some ways, he knows this has a horizontal dimension to it. He probably remembers being taught about how Adam and Eve were, were, were instructed from the Lord and, and how uh, the early parts of the Bible tell this story of how, how God, for this reason, a man leaves father and mother and unites to his wife and they become one flesh. And here we see the context of, of marriage where 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 sexuality is to take place, where its expression, a good gift from God, is ultimately to be found. And so Joseph wouldn't want to violate that for Potiphar and his wife. But also God, also Joseph realizes, why on earth would I jeopardize the with God life that I have by doing such a thing that would be so wicked, that would be so out of, out of touch with what God would want for me to do. Sometimes I imagine that Joseph was maybe told this story from his father Jacob about how lust can lead us down the wrong paths. 
I can imagine Jacob maybe telling his family one time about how he tricked his older brother Esau. His older brother Esau was just giving in to those bodily urges and whatever he felt like doing. Oh, he just crazed it. I have to indulge where I feel this sense of you know, bodily satisfaction needing to be met and these needs to be met. And so Jacob sees that Esau, if he cooks this kind of red stuff, this red stew, he could maybe trick Esau into giving him his birthright. And Esau foolishly trades his birthright and all that comes with it just to satisfy his bodily lust for this red stew, this red stuff as the Hebrew language describes it. And after Esau indulges that lust, he feels terrible. He resents the birthright that he gave away. And Esau's poor example tells us lust doesn't deliver on what it promises. It seems to offer us everything, all this satisfaction, whether that's from what we look at on a computer screen or device, or whether that's money or material possessions or connections, whatever that is. And when we actually get it, maybe immediately it feels okay, but it never delivers ultimately on what it promises. Its promises are empty and they always break down. And I believe Joseph keeps that in mind That an ordinary temptation is not just this very moment, but far more is at stake, far more matters. And he's able to resist even the hardest of temptations by seeing that scene, zooming out, and seeing it with a God's eye view or perspective. No matter how mature you get in the spiritual faith and the life with God, you never will graduate from temptation. We need to be aware, we need to be vigilant, And you've got to remember, it does not deliver on what it promises. But life with God does. So how can we remain faithful? I believe Joseph shows us a remarkable, remarkable example of a with God life, being faithful with a God's eye view on our temptations. And this is costly for Joseph. Potiphar's wife resents him and ultimately traps him, getting his outer cloak left behind in the scene where she tries to act seductively. She lies to Potiphar about Joseph's intentions, and he gets thrown into prison. Not only was he enslaved, now he's wrongly imprisoned. And Joseph's lie starts to tell us about what a God's eye view on our unwanted circumstances can be all about. So now for years, he is in this prison situation. There's a couple of Pharaoh's leaders that get thrown into prison as well. They have dreams and Joseph's able to interpret them. One guy's going to get to go back and return to his post. The other guy's going to be executed. All that comes true. Joseph says, remember me when you go back to Pharaoh. But that person forgets. Two more years elapse. And now Pharaoh starts to have these dreams himself about what is going to be coming into the future. No one can interpret the dream. And then this person remembers there's a guy in prison named Joseph who could probably tell you what your dream is all about. Joseph, this has been 13, or sorry, it's been yeah, 13 years since he's been sold into slavery and imprisoned. And now he gets a chance to stand before Pharaoh. And he is able to interpret the dream. There's going to be years of plenty to come, followed by years of famine. During the years of plenty, we need to be preparing ourselves for the year of famine that are going to be occurring after that. This interpretation seems right to Pharaoh. And he places Joseph in charge of all of Egypt. 
Years go by. Now they're two years into the famine. Joseph has led and managed well. But now his family, which he hasn't seen for over 20 years, makes their way to Egypt to find the grain just to survive. And that dream that Joseph had years before is now being fulfilled right before his eyes. His brothers are all bowing down to him. He recognizes them. They don't recognize him. It's an incredibly emotionally heightened moment. Joseph did not have an easy life. We know his biological mother died giving birth to his little brother, Benjamin. Maybe the reason Jacob showed favoritism to Joseph not only was because Rachel was his true love and that was their their first son, Joseph, born to them, but maybe because he was motherless. Maybe that's why he got the better treatment, but he's grown up with pain. And now the brothers who were supposed to be his family, the people that he could trust and and rally around and depend on, who have wronged him, betrayed him, are now here before him. And what does Joseph do? Some of these middle chapters of Genesis 40 start to start to describe this game that Joseph seems to be playing with them. You can read about that. Some people think, well, maybe Joseph has walked away from his with God life, but I don't think so. I think Joseph sees the vision of reconciliation and forgiveness before him. And for that to occur, his brothers need to really feel the weight and the gravity of what they've done, of what they've caused him to be separated from family and homeland now for decades. But we come now to Genesis 45. And this is one of the best God-eye-view kind of perspectives that we can have on the unwanted circumstances of our lives. See if you can just feel this moment. Then Joseph could no longer control himself before his attendants. And he cried out, have everyone leave my presence. So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him. And Pharaoh's household heard all about it. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. Then Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me. When they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into slavery in Egypt. And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here. Because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now, there has been famine in the land. And for the next five years, there will be no plowing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save lives by a great deliverance. So then, it was not you who sent me here, but God. He made me father to Pharaoh, lord of his entire household and ruler over all of Egypt. In verse 12, you can see for yourselves, and so can my brother Benjamin, that it it is really I who am speaking to you. Tell my father about all the honor accorded me in Egypt and about everything you have seen and bring my father down here quickly. Then he threw his arms around his brother Benjamin and wept. And Benjamin embraced him weeping. And he kissed all of his brothers and wept over them. Afterward, his brothers talked with him. You can tell by the way you're listening, you can feel the weight and the gravity of this moment. 
Many of us probably have some estranged relationships in our own lives and hearing this scene just makes us long for a reconciliation in our own families, our own friendships, our own story. But how can Joseph forgive? How can he do this? Humanly speaking, if we just look at the scene from a human perspective, it's impossible. But Joseph, through the grace that God gives him, the strength because God is with him, is able to see the situation from God's perspective. Yes, you sold me here. Yes, you abandoned me. Yes, you betrayed me. But God allowed it so that I could go ahead of you to save lives in a way I never could have expected. It's a script I never could have written. But I trust God. I trust God. So let's be reconciled. After Joseph ends up reuniting with his father Jacob, and and years they get to spend together in Egypt, Jacob eventually passes on. And now Joseph's brothers fear that Joseph is going to exact revenge on them now. And so the last chapter of Genesis, near the last scene, verse 18 says this, His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. But Joseph said, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me. But God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then, don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. Listen to those words again. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. Now, if you're connecting the dots, you're a Bible reader, you might be thinking of Romans 8.28. Joseph's really an embodiment of this powerful truth. It says this, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. God doesn't say terrible things are good, But it says God works all things together for his greater good as we trust him, as we yield to him. Getting sold into slavery, not good. Being falsely imprisoned is not good. Being separated from family and culture and land and heritage, not good. But God used what isn't good for his greater good. And God can use what's not good in your life for his greater good as well if we will only trust him, if we will not see our circumstances from a merely human standpoint, but with a God's eye view. How might God see your life? Now, maybe you're going through a really hard situation right now. What might be God's perspective on this situation? A couple of weeks ago, I shared from one of my favorite authors, memoirs, Philip Yancey, his book, Where the Light Fell. Just this last week, if you follow ChristianityToday.com, Yancey wrote an absolutely powerful editorial acknowledging that he, now at age 72, has been diagnosed with Parkinson's disease. He was skiing in Colorado where he lives and his brain's telling his legs to move a certain direction and now suddenly they don't any longer. He was in perfect health. His first doctor said, there's no way you can have Parkinson's. Gets a second opinion and it turns out that he does. Yancey wrote a lot about walking with God through grief and suffering, through books like Where is God When It Hurts? And now he's having to learn to apply what he has written to his own life more personally than ever before. Here's a couple paragraphs that he writes I think is so powerful 
about how we can start to see how God might work through the tough situations in our lives for his good. Yancey writes, No two human beings have the same set of abilities, intelligence, appearance, and family backgrounds. We can respond to that inequity with resentment or somehow learn to embrace the gifts and quote-unquote disabilities unique to ourselves. In my writing career, I have interviewed U.S. presidents, rock stars, professional athletes, actors, and other celebrities. I have also profiled leprosy patients in India, pastors in prison for their faith in China, women rescued from sex trafficking, parents of children with rare genetic disorders, and many who suffer from diseases far more debilitating than Parkinson's. Reflecting on the two groups, here's what stands out. With some exceptions, those who live with pain and failure tend to be better stewards of their life circumstances than those who live with success and pleasure. Pain redeemed impresses me more than pain removed. Let me read that again and just look at that phrase. Pain redeemed impresses me more than pain removed. He finishes the article by saying, My future is full of question marks, and I'm not unduly anxious. I have excellent medical care and support from friends. I trust a good and loving God who often chooses to reveal those qualities through his followers on earth. I have written many words on suffering, and now I am being called to put them into practice. May I be a faithful steward. That's his prayer. May I be a faithful steward of the unwanted circumstances that I might be living with right now. A desire to be faithful in the midst of what we don't want. That's a God's eye view. That's a God's eye view, not a human perspective. How might God be inviting you to take a God's eye view on what you're going through and living with and struggling with and suffering from right now? quoted quite a few stories of men throughout this message, but I'd like to conclude by sharing the story of a woman who I so deeply admire. I've been encouraging us to read the Life with God Bible, which has kind of given the arc and the structure to our series. And in this book, in this Bible, they connect Joseph with a 14th century saint named Julian of Norwich. Now, Julian authored the first published work in the English language called Revelations of Divine Love. It's written in a time of deep social unrest. The Black Plague was present. Julian herself nearly died at the age of 30. And yet in the midst of such a harsh environment, listen to these words that she writes about the goodness of God. Just as our flesh is covered by clothing and our blood is covered by our flesh, so are we, soul and body, covered and enclosed by the goodness of God. Yet the clothing and the flesh will pass away, but the goodness of God will always remain and will remain closer to us than our own flesh. And then she adds some of the most famous words in all of Christian writing. All shall be well and all shall be well and all manner of things shall be well. Would you read that out loud with me? I'd love for those words just to be internalized a little bit. There are words we need to remember. And all shall be well, and all shall be well, 
and all manner of things shall be well. Now, this is not just the power of positive thinking or wishful thinking. This is a reality grounded in God's deepest truth and love. It's a message we can believe and that she believed because she trusted so deeply in Jesus. He's the one who is the true and better Joseph. Like Joseph, Jesus was betrayed by those closest to him. Joseph was sold for 20 pieces of silver into slavery. Jesus handed over by Judas for 30 pieces. Like Joseph, Jesus was in prison for a crime he didn't commit. But unlike Joseph, Jesus' life was not spared. But he rose from the grave, giving us hope that death is defeated and one day will be done away with for good. And as God set Joseph as a leader over Egypt, one day Jesus will rule over all. And the promises that he has given to us will be fulfilled when he completes the world and sets everything right. There will be reconciliation like we have never seen as Revelation gives us that vision of people from every background, every tribe, every nation being one with Jesus as the prime sustainer and most glorious inhabitant of this new and beautiful community. And that vision is to cause us to work toward relational and racial reconciliation in our day and age as well. It's the vision God has given to us. So we need to see our perspectives, our life through not a human lens, but through a God's eye view. And so church, may he give us the focus to keep the ultimate vision of the finished work of Christ that is still before us in view May he give us a God's eye view to be able to do our work really well, to resist the temptations that come, to endure through life's hardest circumstances. And may he give us the faith and the assurance to proclaim alongside Julian of Norwich, because of Christ, all shall be well and all shall be well and all manner of things shall be well. Amen? Let's pray together. God, we thank you for this faithful life of Joseph that inspires me to want to live more with you, not to settle for living an average Christian life, believing the right things, checking the right boxes. Lord, I want to be with you so much that my whole life is transformed to reflect you more and more, Jesus. And I pray that all of us would have that desire awakened in the depths of our souls as well, We don't just want to settle for maybe getting into heaven after we die. We want to get heaven into us here and now by your grace. So Lord, I pray that you would give us a renewed vision of how we can serve you at work. I pray that you would give us a renewed sense of fervor to resist the enemy's attacks and help us to believe that there is beauty when we see the power of our pain redeemed for your greater good. And so Lord, may we know as Psalm 23 proclaims, that surely your goodness, your mercy will follow us all the days of our lives. And may we sense ourselves being wrapped up in your goodness now and forever. And for anyone today that has not made that proclamation of putting their faith and trust in you, God, I pray that maybe we would just say yes to believing these promises are for me, not just for others, but for me. So we want to yield our lives to you, God. We say yes to you. Thank you for your forgiveness. And thank you through the cross and resurrection, we can be reconciled with you. And we can walk in your goodness day by day. And it's in Jesus' great name that everyone proclaimed together and said, amen.